recorded live. Well, welcome to Bill Fink's Christogenia Talk Show program for September 14th. This is Pastor Mark Downey, and the title of tonight's program is, Is the Constitution Christian? But first, I'd like to uh, open with a prayer, if we may. Father in heaven, bless this evening's program with the presence of your Holy Spirit. May you put the words of truth in our mouths and may it be received into the hearts and minds of our fellow Israelites that are listening and that will be listening. Keep us focused in these perilous times that we may do that which is right in thine eyes. In the name of Jesus Christ, amen. Well, uh, about a month ago, Bill asked me if I wanted to be a substitute host <laughs> while he went on vacation. And uh, at first, I was filled with a little bit of anxiety and, and trepidation, being that this would be my very first attempt at uh, hosting a live show. But um, he suggested that I could have a guest. And I thought, right, somebody else can do the talking besides me. <laughs> uh, it didn't take me very long to come up with a topic for tonight's program. And a guest who has some expertise on the subject. And um, we, we have a rather new controversy brewing in Christian identity, uh, as if we need yet another one. And it has to do with our founding fathers of these here United States of America. Well, tonight I'd like for us to answer the question, is the Constitution Christian? There are some accusations that claim it's immoral and that the founders were anti-Christian. I know that Bill has written a few papers in support of the Christian foundation that America was built upon even though his uh, forte is ancient literature. I'd like to take this opportunity right now to thank uh, Bill Fink for the dedication and contributions he's made to our movement. Any, anybody who spends 12 years in prison and has the wherewithal to focus on learning Koine Greek in order to give us a Christian identity translation of the New Testament under such adverse conditions, I think deserves a big salute of thanksgiving. Uh, I know Bill is, within the last year, has uh, come under a little bit of flack, but I think Bill is a godsend for our movement, and I, for one, am, I'm not jealous of, of his gift, and I think it is a gift from God, as some of his detractors have, have been, but uh, I'm really blessed by the knowledge and wisdom that he consistently imparts on a, a weekly basis. So uh, having said that, I pray that Bill is enjoying his vacation, uh, well-deserved rest, and that uh, he returns next week refreshed and inspired. Well, my guest tonight is Pastor Ken Lent of Virginia. And um, many of you may remember him from the old solarsabbath.com website. Ken is the only person I've ever met 
who at the ripe old age of 15 actually attended William Potter Gale's church in Mariposa, California. And as many of you know, Gale is the guy who coined the term Christian identity and was responsible for getting Wesley Swift started in his ministry. Well, Pastor Lent ministered a church in Florida for many years before moving to Virginia in semi-retirement. And of course, once you get the CI truth in your blood, it's virtually impossible to retire. And so I'm happy that uh, Ken has agreed to come on the program and share some of the research he's discovered over the years to uh, set the record straight for some of those that might have reservations about the founding of our nation. Welcome to the show, Ken. Well, thank you, Mark, and uh, I'd like to thank both you and uh, Bill for inviting me. And uh, I guess we're going to speak about government tonight. Well, first, let me ask you, uh, would you like to elaborate on that very short biography, and, and would you like to give out any contact information or websites well, that you're it, involved with? Well, it was close, close enough. Uh, <laughs> uh, I was pastor of Christian Bible Ministries for 30 years. It was a kingdom, Israel Christian kingdom ministry. had cassette tapes going out to every state in the union. And so I'm not technically a pastor anymore because that's a big job. has has um, many things that a pastor has to do that I'm not quite doing right now. But I do moderate a, um, a Christian educational website, and I am a uh, head director of our Christian Family Outdoor Sportsman's Group. And uh, that certainly keeps me busy. And as you said, it's not easy to retire from all this. And uh, so I haven't retired. I've more or less just uh, switched gears, as <laughs> the case may be. Uh, the website is a subdomain, so it may be a little long uh, URL to read. It's becoming very active. I could I could read it, or else I could give the, the, the callers or the uh, listeners just my uh, email address, and if they would want to um, email me, after the show, and I could send them links to more articles and uh, the website that I'm uh, presently working on. Why don't my you go ahead and give your email? Uh, right, my email shorter. address is, is Ezra98. Now, there's no spaces between. It's just like the book, E-Z-R-A-9-8 at peoplepc.com. So that's Ezra98 at peoplepc.com. And they can just drop me a quick line saying that they – heard Mark and Ken on the show tonight, and uh, if I would uh, forward them the link to our website, and uh, that would do for the contact. Okay. Right. Well, uh, before we begin to tackle the question, is the Constitution Christian, uh, I'd like to quote the enemy of our God and our race, Karl Marx, All right. the founding father of godless communism, who said, quote, take away the heritage of a people, and they are easily persuaded. Now, we're going to find out if our heritage has been taken away. And if it has, how that has affected white Christian society. I'm reminded of uh, Isaiah 42:24, which says, Who gave Jacob for a spoil and Israel to the robbers? Did not the Lord? He against whom we have sinned, for they would not walk in his ways, neither were they obedient unto his law. 
Well, this begs the question, Ken, did our founding fathers walk in the ways of the Lord? Well, I mean, that's the question for tonight. And, uh, you know, Second Samuel 23, 3 says, He that ruleth over men must be just, ruling in the fear of God. So where we are now, uh, Pastor, is uh, in the New Testament Commonwealth jurisdiction of government, where we happen to be at the present time, we are to rule in the likeness of our eternal king in accordance with his wisdom. Now, Isaiah gives us a, a very important verse concerning this, and Isaiah says in Isaiah 33:22, For the Almighty is our judge, the Almighty is our lawgiver, the Almighty is our king. He will save us. Now, Pastor, that is judicial, legislative, and executive qualities of our family king, God Almighty. So uh, where are we now? Well, the body politic, and, and by that I mean the the body of Christian believers of the several original states united, let's use that term for now, would reflect this character as a whole. Now, the Apostle Paul gives us a beautiful truth about this, uh, Pastor Mark. Paul says in Philippians 2.13, For it is God which worketh in you, all right? It is God which worketh in you both to will and to do of his good pleasure. Now, isn't that amazing, Pastor? The executive, the legislative, and judicial form of government is now in us, God's sons and daughters. And our early American forefathers, what did they do? They, they set up a government after the inner principles of God himself that Isaiah told us about. That is a powerful statement given to us by the word of God. And this would seem to be in tandem with the new covenant, whereby the law is put in our heart and our mind. Well, absolutely. Now, Pastor Donnie, we can surely thank God Almighty indeed that that he had blessed America with brave and faithful Christian men in the late 1700s who, well, what actually did they do? They they set up a, a what could be called a sanctuary nation for white Christian civilization, and it was unequaled in all of history. And, uh, you know, as we look at this and look at the history of our people, where they've been and where they came from, of course, you know, we all know that it's Jesus Christ who is the good shepherd, and he was leading his servants across the Atlantic to replant the national kingdom of Saxon Israel right here in Latter-day Zion, which the Bible also calls the New Jerusalem of regathered Israel. Well, let's put a few things in, in context here. There's um, your Judeo-Christian crowd that, that says um, America isn't in the Bible. Uh, which is a, a pretty profound, uh, unintelligent uh, surmising uh, if you don't read the Bible. Well, that's uh, true. I mean, the word America might not be in the Bible, but there are hundreds of uh, clues that were given uh, that there there is very much uh, a link between the Israel people and what was to become America. Well, absolutely. I mean, it's there. I mean, the, the Judeo-Christian churches would have to answer the question, you know, America at this present time, in the most prophetic times probably in Bible history, other than the crucifixion of, of our king, is at the center of world attention. It, it affects everything that everybody does, and they just happen to have the audacity to say, well, you know, God Almighty missed that. His prophets didn't write about that. He completely skipped over 
America the Beautiful that would be the focal point of, of all uh, events in the latter ages. So, you know, where do they go with that? The great controversy, and I might say the great racial controversy, is whose country is this? And wow. uh, liberals say, well, the engines were here first. <laughs> they do. But they do. Uh, we have all kinds of evidence that uh, the, uh, the white man uh, in different eras uh, trekked across this land. In fact, right. historians now understand that um, during the time of Solomon, Israelites and, and their allies from Tyre were collectively called by the Greeks Phoenicians, mm -hmm. and they traveled to the New World during the Golden Age of Israel to mine gold and silver. Right. And, uh, and then there was the Vikings, who um, would no later than um, 500 years after Christ come to the New World. And they traveled across the northern Atlantic by way of Iceland and Greenland and uh, found their way south all the way to the Mississippi River. Exactly. And uh, interestingly enough, uh, their writings in what's called Ogham script are found in Oklahoma and I've heard Tennessee and a few other states. But uh, probably the most well-known one is that the Ten Commandments in old Hebrew Phoenician script are engraved on a large uh, flat rock on the side of a mountain near Las Lunas, New Mexico. Mm -hmm. and, well, uh, and, of course, there's well, uh, Columbus in mm -hmm. 1492, but uh, who represented the Catholic Church, but that was uh, not in the cards as far as God's plan went. Right. Well, the fingerprints and handprints and, and archaeology and numismatics and whatever you have of the of the sons of Isaac being the Saxons are all over this this continent from um, way back, preceding those that would be by the so-called liberal claims of the Indians that came over the uh, land bridge, uh, you know, of uh, from Asia over to Alaska, if that's even indeed what happened. So, um, well, there's even the uh, Anastasi Indians in. Um I think it's Arizona, uh -huh. where the dwellings are uh, right-angle, square-type buildings in a, a huge canyon. And even the Hopi say that uh, they didn't build them. They were there when they came. Well, it's true. And that's all very interesting, and it is valid. But even more important than that is, is what do the Scriptures say about God Almighty and to whom did he give this land? Who inherited this land from the Almighty? And we're going to touch on that tonight uh, quite a bit as we proceed. Land is one of the key elements to discovering whether the Constitution is Christian. And the, uh, la the land inheritance goes right along with our redemption. And sadly, uh, a, a portion of our people have forgotten that. I think we can go back to the 1600s um, when Christians first started coming to America, the the parallel between ancient Israel and the United States was so striking that virtually every preacher and theologian in early America saw it and mentioned it some way in their sermons, calling it the new Israel or God's vineyard or even the kingdom of God. Mm -hmm. Kingdom of God. Well, which is actually the, the, what the meaning of the word America is in the Gothic anyhow. We could get into that at some other time. But, um, well, you're correct, you know, um, 
the nation of God Almighty uh, coming to the New Jerusalem was officially now. I mean, our people were here before this, but officially it was set up by divine providence. And we're going to be getting into that word quite a bit tonight, which is the hand of God. God's regathered New Jerusalem kingdom was planted officially according to prophecy and what he gives us in his word in the era from 1776 to 1789. And that was done by the decrees of the documents of the Declaration of Independence, the Articles of Confederation, and the original Constitution for the United States of America. So that's going to be the topic that we will discuss tonight, and we'll point out a few interesting things uh, of that 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 possibly have not had an opportunity to be uh, heard on a level such as this uh, open forum that Bill Fink has given us so graciously to uh, have tonight. And... Leading up to um, that significant um, uh, element of prophecy in in the United States, which we'll get to in a a little bit, uh, even the word America, which is an old Saxon and and Danish compound word where Amera means heavenly and Rick means kingdom, um, this this is... been a, a common understanding within Christian identity. I don't think too many other uh, uh, churches or denominations are aware of it, but it, it literally means the heavenly kingdom or kingdom of heaven. Exactly. And and the pilgrims uh, undoubtedly knew this. They did. So that brings us to... Mm-hmm. It, Go ahead. It's interesting <laughs> also... Uh, if we study the etymology of the entire name of this nation, the United States of America, uh, we find uh, an even more interesting and complete meaning, uh, whereby where the means God's, that is, it's owned by God. And uh, theology begins right. with T-A-T. the first T-H-E. Mm-hmm. It's a, theology is a study of God. Well, it's and, all there in the words, and it's all there in the scriptures, Brother Mark. And in Greek, theos means mm-hmm. God. Right. And even in Spanish, uh, the word for the is el, which is mm-hmm. the Hebrew word for God. Well, the same the same with someone is enthused, entheos, God in you. Mm-hmm. You know, it, it, it livens you and quickens you. So you're correct on these words that have to be examined, uh, because there's much in the words and the language that can be uh, misrepresented, or not understood or forgotten, and we're going to get into some of those things tonight. And, and, and uh, getting closer to um, uh, your thesis, uh, the word united means greater, and the word state means a state. It means a state. It always did. Thus, if we put all this together, it means God's greater estate of the heavenly kingdom. How about that? Exactly. <laughs> and that's where we are. <laughs> So we have the words United States of America in the Articles of Confederation, and we have the words United States of America in the preamble to the Constitution now. And it really does indicate our national goal as envisioned by our founders. Well, it does, but now we're being told that the the Constitution is godless. And I think that has come about, uh, Pastor, because, you know, a lot of people are frustrated today, and and rightfully so, and... um, you know, they are looking around for something to blame all of our woes in the land upon. So we have heard some come out with information saying, well, what we need to do is get rid of the Constitution completely, and then we'll be on the right path and getting back to God, and all of our miseries will be solved, and et cetera, et cetera. 
Well, the only problem with that is is that our Saxon ancestors back in the days of ancient Israel, they had God's laws written on stone and parchment right in front of them. And it was being taught to them by the priests and the prophets. And what did they do? They did the exact same thing as our people today. They sinned and they rebelled against God and rebelled against his government. And you know, Pastor, there was no constitution to blame back then. So, the, you know, it's, the it's not the scriptures... Mm-hmm. It's not the scriptures or the Constitution that is the problem. The problem is what it has always been. It's the stubbornness of the people and their refusal to repent and to obey God. The Constitution is a lot like the Bible in that the original version has been tampered with. How many mistranslations in Bible versions do we have with the admonition at the very end of Revelation that says, thou shalt not add unto or take away from the word of God. Well, they've made something out of the Constitution today that was never meant to be, you know, completely. And uh, and, and that uh, beckons divine judgment when it uh, uh, distorts the, the original intent. I mean, and, and this very fact that God judges and disciplines us for our sins and abominations, really, um, that's good news in itself because uh, that only applies to one nation. Mm-hmm. And it means that, that we are in some way a manifestation of the true Israel in the modern world exactly. because there's plenty of scriptures that, that tells us that um, uh, God only chastens those that he loves and that... Um, uh, those whom the Lord loves, he disciplines. And so, of course, there's judgment upon our land uh, because they've they've changed uh, something that was original and pure and innocent. Well, you hit the key word uh, a minute ago. You said intent. What was the intent of the Founding Fathers and the intent of the Constitution? And I believe that, that we have missed it or it has been hidden and not known for for possibly since the beginning, because that Constitution was attacked as soon as it was ratified. Um, I'd like to say a little word to the listeners, uh, because I'd like to see them have participation in this too, although we can't speak with them right now. Listeners, we are going to do a little study this evening, and I'd like to ask you to join in the participation. So uh, we're going to have some fun tonight with this too. If you could reach over and get yourself a sheet of paper and a pen, you know, one of each will do. (laughs) This won't be extensive. Because a little bit later, we're going to jot down a few things to set out clearly exactly what Mark pointed out, the intention. Exactly what the Founding Fathers had accomplished in writing the Constitution. And we're going to see how this relates to God's inheritance laws, the laws of inheritance for his family. Now, we'll get back to this a little later on, but if... If the, uh, the listeners want to get a, a sheet of paper and a pen, we're going to list some things that will, will correct or be revealed um, at this point in time as to the original tent uh, of what our founding fathers meant in drawing up the Constitution. And you know, Pastor, with all of this recent controversy that's come up, the same thing that is being done with the Constitution, as you mentioned, to have it appear as a a secular document written by non-Christians, supposedly, which makes it appear to be something that it's not. Well, you know, if, if, if you and I were to just can the subject matter 
for tonight, and uh, we took the Holy Scriptures. We can do the same thing with the Holy Scriptures that is being done with the Constitution. You and I could sit here for the next two hours, and we could verse-pick words that have been misinterpreted. We could use one-verse Christianity, as so often is, as whosoever will may come, or John 3.16, God so loved the world that whosoever will call upon his name, or Acts 2.44, all things in common the believers had. We could sit here and make a case for universalism, even, even communism, out of the scriptures. We could write pages about how we see the Bible as a world community book. And actually, actually, Pastor Mark, we could even go out and find a hundred or so clergy that would give us their quotes in support, could we not? Now, it wouldn't be a correct or true presentation, but if someone never gave the other side of the story, well, what's going to happen? A certain amount of people would actually believe it. So this well, that's is the same why thing I quoted, the same. Uh, mm-hmm. That's why I quoted Karl Marx in the beginning when he said, take away the heritage of a people and they are easily persuaded. We are. So if they, uh, if they change American history, mm-hmm. then people can be persuaded that the Founding Fathers weren't good guys or Christians. Pastor, it's been, it's been a misrepresentation of the original intent of our Founding Fathers. And it's all been done by word twisting, and it's it's uh, whoever had begun it, uh, probably for the purpose of convincing our people, uh, based on poorly researched information. Now, you know we have an adversary in our land, and um, what we hear about the Constitution being secular was actually started by the liberal element in our society, by the anti-Christians, and. Uh, by the universities and the the, um, ADL and the Southern Poverty Law Center and so forth and so on. But in 1996, two Cornell University professors, Isaac Kramnik and R. Lawrence Moore, they wrote a book called The Godless Constitution, The Case Against Religious Correctness. Now, what they did in there is is they created, uh, supposedly from the U.S. Constitution, an utterly secular state. And they said it was unshackled from the intolerant chains of religion, so they said. Uh, Their information was was very skewed. Their argument uh, is superficial and it's misleading, but if you don't have a chance to hear the other side, you would never know. So we have choices in life to make that we get chances to make, and uh, even to the point of deciding whom we want to believe on certain matters. Now, you and I and others can see which way the college crowd, the mainstream media, and the social gospel churches are taking America. And it doesn't look good, does it? Uh, well, that's why do we have it. Why What's happening in America today? Mainly because people today are being fed a lot of bad information, and they can't make a proper decision. So, well, you know, if, before there were uh, public schools, uh, all education in the United States were Christian institutions. Well, exactly. So do you think maybe we should go back and consult someone who was an expert of the terminology in the days when the USA was established? Well, the, I'd like the to church, do that at one point keeps... right now. I, I, you know, We have the, the Cornell University professors telling us one thing. Let's go back and see what Noah Webster said about this in 1832, because he lived there right at that time. 
Yeah. Now, Noah Webster was the author of America's First Dictionary, and he published his History of the United States. And I'm going to quote from Noah Webster because he knew the terminology and how it applied in those days. Now, this is what Noah Webster said about the Constitution and Christianity. Noah Webster said this, quote, The brief exposition of the Constitution of the United States will unfold to young persons the principles of republican government, and it is the sincere desire of the writer that our citizens should early understand that the genuine source of correct republican principles is the Bible, particularly the New Testament or the Christian religion. And he went on to say, this is Noah Webster continuing, the religion which has introduced civil liberty is the religion of Christ and his apostles, which enjoins humility, piety, and benevolence, which acknowledges in every person a brother or sister and a citizen with equal rights. This is genuine Christianity, and to this we owe our free constitutions of government. End quote. Now, that's from Noah Webster in 1832, and, and then we get to 1996, and we have college professors telling us just the opposite. Well, even as late as... Make, uh, whom, do we, whom do we choose to believe? Ken, even as late as 1879, the uh, McGuffey's Reader, which was the standard school text, um, quotes uh, Lyman Beecher saying... For while most nations trace their origin to barbarians, the foundations of our nation were laid by civilized men, by Christians. Well, exactly. And um, But you see, they won't teach those kind of quotations in today's classrooms. No, they don't. Now, now our founding fathers, such as George Washington, Thomas Jefferson, Sam Adams, and Benjamin Franklin, these men had just put their lives on the line to free our purple people, excuse me, from the, the people of the, this nation, from um, the world money controllers of Europe. Now, to think that they're going to turn right around and devise some morbid type of contract that would upend every single thing that they had just accomplished, well, you know, it seems to me that's a strange concept that's being presented as fact. And, and uh, history, recorded history, will show that it's anything but the truth of the matter. Well, you know, they probably don't want to refresh uh, white people's memory of how early American sermons clearly showed the widespread belief that uh, this nation was the fifth kingdom of Daniel, the stone kingdom, well, that was uh, destined to finish... Uh, the work that the Reformation had begun and ultimately smashed the feet of the Babylonian image. And to them, Babylon was uh, political Europe and Papal Rome, right. both of which were based upon aristocratic or monarchical foundations. Mm -hmm. And they felt America was to be a beacon of light uh, and a model of hope to those who were slave, enslaved to that absolute power, whether uh, political or religious. Mm -hmm. Well, speaking of Babylon, there's, there's another point uh, to bring up, uh, because some people consider these uh, Babylonian, uh, are contracts that are not found specifically written in the scriptures, but are, are still between Christian men. Are they valid? Are they valid for us to uphold? And the answer to that is yes. The, 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 God, the Word of God Almighty says that they are. 
for one thing, First Peter 2.13, we've heard of it, submit yourself to every ordinance of man for the master's sake, right? whether it be to the king as supreme or to governors as unto them that are sent by him for the punishment of evildoers and for the praise of them that do well. Now, this is not referring to Babylon's evil statutes, because the same, the same apostle that said that, it was Peter, he said in Acts 5.29, we ought to obey God rather than men. Yes. So, so the scriptures tell us there are going to be valid and good contracts, laws actually made by men, every ordinance of man, and that we are to submit to them when they are in the spirit of God's righteousness, which the original Constitution is. Now, that now, era, uh, during the, the Constitution, that, that time period uh, when the Constitution was being crafted, um, it wasn't establishing a religion, but it, it was establishing God's authority. Well, it was, but you know, there, there are some today that teach, well, the Constitution may be good, but after all, it's adding to God's Word. Uh, well, you know, if that's the case, then it's not adding any to God's word any more than firearms aren't mentioned in the scripture. So, are we to only use swords today, or you know, I mean, uh, do we honor contracts made between honorable Christian men? So, Pastor, for instance, are yours and mine friendly verbal contract that we entered in tonight to you to have me on the show to discuss some matters? That contract between you and me is not mentioned in the Bible, is it? Not specifically. I mean, you know, Mark Downey and Ken Lent on September 14, 2012, contracting to have, have an educational discussion on Bill Fink's show is not mentioned in the Scriptures. Now, does that mean by virtue of that fact that you and I are doing something evil here? Well, I it, mean, it always gets back to what's the principle. <laughs> right. Well, and, I mean... Uh, you, you know, is an honest and virtuous contract in law valid? And, you know, the, the answer is yes, because I'll tell you a, a thought on this, all right? I come from Genesis 29, <laughs> talking about contracts of men. The entire progeny covenant line of Israel came about as a result of a, a so-called, you know, man-made agreement. Now, with circumstances were ultimately directed by God in the first place, and I'm referring to the contract between Jacob and Laban, for serving Laban 14 years, right? Now, that resulted in Jacob having the sons of Israel born to Laban's two daughters and their handmaids. Now, if there wasn't this man-made contract between Jacob and Laban, there never would have been an Israel nation in our family's history at all. And there's the principle in law. Well, right. Man-made contracts that are in conformity to God's fairness and goodwill are they're lawfully binding they're even necessary and and it's god almighty who watches over the affairs of men and how could anybody say it's not christian well or even a sin or immoral well because word games are being played here that if it's not exactly mentioned in the scriptures well you know then you're adding to god's word and you know that's not a very good argument as far as the equity and, and the righteousness and fairness that we know that our king has established for our people. I mean, every single incident and contract and agreement between every Saxon Israelite, the Damic Saxon Israelite from, from the days of Adam and Eve up till now could not have been recorded and mentioned in the scriptures because the scriptures would probably be 10, 10 or 20 million pages long. I mean, it's, it's an absurd uh, uh, reason to uh, down 
play the Constitution. Now, Ken, I, I believe that we can yet fulfill our nation's original, original principles and intent and purposes of God's divine plan, mm-hmm. but it can't be done without the Christian identity message. No. And there's a lot of uh, uh, Judeo-Christians, good intentions, uh, that um, talk about the Constitution and uh, the Founding Fathers, but the key element that's always missing is race and inheritance Mm -hmm. and and God's law. Mm -hmm. And... um, well, the Constitution was very racial. We'll touch on that. Uh, this kind of leads into um, what's been referred to as um, seven times punishment. Mm-hmm. And um, I think Christian identity is the only uh, group of Christians in the world, I guess, that has discovered this old truth. Uh, I have never heard this um, um, prophecy that has come to pass um, exposited by by any other denomination or church or uh, individual. Well, it's extremely important. Well, why don't we get into that a little bit? Well, historically and scripturally. Well, all right. And, you know, I mean... uh, as our people always do, they were in rebellion against the, the national laws of our of our eternal king. And uh, he said that he would put on them a seven times punishment before they would be regathered as a nation again. And, of course, as we get into a time in the Bible, it's a secular circle of, of uh, 360. So, uh, you know, we see in Daniel 725, the kingdom of the beast is said to be for a time, times, and a half a time, or, you know, it's three and a half times, and if you go over to Revelation 13, I believe it's verse 5, it's, being, uh, it's related to 42 months, which is 1,260 days, mm-hmm. or three and a half years. So, right. Yeah, right. Well, you know, three and a half times is equal to uh, 1,260 days. So a seven, uh, seven times, a full seven times, would be 2,520 days. Now, in Ezekiel 4, 6, I believe it is, God says, I have appointed thee each day for a year. So it's in Leviticus 26:18 where God says He would punish Israel seven times. So where that leads is where you've exactly pointed out a, a very prophetic time, the late 1700s were chosen by God Almighty as a generation that would officially replant the seedling of the kingdom because that comes out. Uh, Tiglath Pileser started his uh, aggression against the the kingdom of Israel in uh, 745 BC. Now, now, let's you, keep in mind, Ken, that. Mm-hmm. We're talking about the house of Israel right. who incurred the wrath of God in 745 B.C. Right. And that this is an exclusive relationship between God and one race of people. Exclusive it doesn't involve anybody else. Mm-hmm. And the time of that punishment for them to be regathered again in their nation, as you know, comes out to 1776 A.D. And I might point out, it doesn't come out to the 1600s colonial Christians, because uh, there is a, a, a teaching that, well, the 1600 colonial Christians, well, you know, they were the ones that had everything right, and they were great people. They did a hard work in coming over here. 
But as far as the prophetic time ending and the official regathering of the kingdom, it was in 1776, the generation of George Washington, Benjamin Franklin, and Thomas Jefferson. 2,520 years from 745 B.C. falls on July 4th, 1776. That is amazing. Yep, exactly. Now are we to understand, when you start thinking about this, Mm -hmm. and the detractors of the Founding Fathers and the Constitution, would they say that after that long expanse of, of judgment and time, that uh, uh, it would be nipped in the bud and and more judgment would uh, uh, follow right after that? Or well, some not give his people a little to... breathing room after that much time? Right. Well, some of them have gone so far as to say that the, the, the people of the Americans of the late 1700s were Satans or Satans. And yet God waited. He waited for the Christians of the late 1700s to bless them with the victory in the war for liberty against the banker-controlled England. So, I mean, you know, um, if we're going to connect the dots here, we've, we wind up, as you said, on July 4th, 1776. But then again, you know, the, at that particular time, we have the verbiage being bounced around, well, these weren't Christians, these were deists. And our founding fathers were deists. And well, uh, I, we guess we, the, I guess we could talk about that a little bit. Before we get into deism, I, I want to pursue this uh, seven times punishment a little bit right. more because I think it's very profound. It is. And uh, someone may be wondering that if if God's judgment on the white race ended in 1776, mm-hmm. then why have things gotten so progressively bad to the present day? And we have to keep in mind that the blessings and curses can happen simultaneously. We have to understand Mm -hmm. that God's prophetic plan often has good and evil overlapping and uh, running concurrently in order to be fulfilled. Well, we're in a battle. We're in a war. And, um, you know, God's the ultimate dialectician strategically placing this thesis and antithesis together for his final divine synthesis it's uh, his evidence of predestination but it it can only be witnessed through the eyes of god uh your secular people they they can't see uh the divine perspective Mm -hmm. uh, because of their own carnal vision but um we know that god's kingdom is everlasting and that he also rules in the kingdom of men and yet the violent take the kingdom by force well, they do, and we're seeing and that now. That couldn't have been more obvious than in 1776 when the seven times expired. It's kind of like the clockwork. Uh, a, a new nation was born, um, and simultaneously in, in 1776, the Illuminati was also founded well, by uh, Adam Weishaupt. Right. And this is a classic confrontation between Christ and Antichrist. Uh, in which God's still in control and cultivating and synchronizing his people towards the return of Christ and living with him in his kingdom. But uh, 2,520 years was a long time. It's a long time. But, you know, the potter molds the clay into two types. 
vessels of honor that he keeps and vessels of dishonor that he destroys. So people have to be patient, even if things don't happen in their own generation. We have to look at things from God's perspective. Well, that's exactly right. We were talking about um, the Founding Fathers and uh, their arrival in 1776. You brought up a point about the one of the philosophies that had arisen in 1776. The antithesis of that was the Illuminati and Adam Weishaupt that had, you know, actually within a generation had infiltrated America. And George Washington has uh, the Library of Congress has his original letter that he was actually concerned that this had taken place. So it didn't take the, uh, I kind of call them abortion experts because they're always wanting to kill the young ones off, just as Herod did the, the, young, the young sons when he heard that, uh, that Christ was born. And, uh, you know, what our founding fathers did in the colonies was the seedling of the kingdom. And what happened immediately? Well, here come the abortion doctors and trying to kill the seedling. And they haven't yet. And, you know, we are going to win this thing, but the seed was planted and the kingdom is regrowing from 1776 on. Mm-hmm. Well, you know, there's various um, state constitutions. The, the, the federal constitution uh, was something entirely different than what's mm-hmm. being, what it's being passed off uh, today well, because of its different. racial nature. Mm-hmm. But in, in the First Amendment, they try and say it's that separation of church and state, you know. And it was never there. Not, not to establish any religion. But but the fact is, the various state constitutions uh, very much extolled Christianity. The original constitutions of the states, they all did. Yeah. And I can give you just a few here. They're short. Well, that would be good. And uh, the uh, Delaware Bill of Rights, Article 1, Section 1, mm-hmm. says, although it is the duty of all men to frequently assemble together for public worship of Almighty God and piety and morality on which the prosperity of communities depend are hereby promoted. And the Constitution of Mississippi, Section 18, the rights hereby secured shall not be construed to justify acts of licentiousness injurious to morals or dangerous to the peace and safety of the state or to exclude the Holy Bible from use in any public school of this state. Right. Well, that was constant all the way down the line. It was a Christian people and a Christian nation and a Christian government. Let me give you one more. This is Virginia, Article 1, Section 16. It says that religion or the duty which we owe our Creator, it is the mutual duty of all to practice Christian forbearance, love, and charity towards each other. And like you said, this was in all uh, state constitutions in the colonies at that time. Well, about 30-some years ago, I happened to be in an antique shop browsing, and lo and behold, there was a a seven-volume work from the early 1900s, and it was every organic document and law and charter from 1492 up until 1910 in the United States that was written. Had, had them all. I'll, I'll, I 
needless to say, I, I purchased them, and I have them on my bookshelf right now as we are speaking. And they've been an invaluable source of exactly what you're saying. And just perusing through them, you can see the, the, the Christian uh, makeup of the nation straight through from when they landed up and through, including the state constitutions. Now, that has you know later been um, done away with and morphed into something they weren't originally, but we're talking about the late 1700s, what was the makeup of the Christian people, and how did that affect the original Constitution of the United States that was drawn up uh, in 1787. And it was Christian all the way down the line. So we're, we're speaking principles here. Here's something interesting. Um, you know, Obama said um, within the last year or so, maybe it was earlier in his administration, that America is not a Christian nation. <laughs> he did. And what's interesting about that is that by a whimsical proclamation, he is um, um, shooting down a Supreme Court decision. Well, and that was the, the famous case of Holy Trinity Church versus right. the United States. Mm -hmm. And it mm -hmm. said this, these and many other matters which might be noticed add a volume of unofficial declarations to the mass of organic utterances that this is a Christian nation. That's and a that's Supreme decision. Court decision. That was the Supreme Court decision, and it was it was in the post-constitutional ratification period. Yes. It was after the Constitution was passed. Right. And they still ruled that and said that. So I don't know where the, the president got the power to um, uh, change law, a Supreme Court decision. Well, uh, he didn't. We unless he thinks he's a dictator or something. Well, I mean, you know, <laughs> he's the abomination. What do you expect? There you go. <laughs> and, of course, that all changed with the uh, War of Northern Aggression upon the South, and maybe we could touch on that a little bit, because the Constitution before the so-called Civil War and after two different documents completely. And I think here's another thing that we have to touch on. Um, those that are dissatisfied with the Constitution, they lump it all together. They, they lump the present Constitution in with the original Constitution, and it isn't so. They are going 180 degrees opposite each other. So that's another thing we might be able to brush on later on in the conversation. Um, I'm not following what you're saying there. Could you explain that a little bit? Well, I'm saying this, that 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 you hear dissatisfaction with the Constitution, and it's the source of our evils and whatnot, and whatever you have. And a lot of those people that are saying that, they're looking at the ill effects of the Constitution that came into being after the Civil War, okay? not the original Constitution with the original Christian Republic. Right. Gotcha. Okay. All right. Um, so where were we after this? Well, um, another one of the uh, sacred cows that right. uh, the detractors of the Constitution like to bring up mm -hmm. uh, and talk about uh, mangling words and uh, uh, distorting the historical record uh, you mentioned earlier uh, this thing about deism. 
Right. And the accusation That's... that the founding fathers were deist. That's where we were. I knew we were on track somewhere. I forgot. Yeah, I wanted to cover a few bases leading up to that. Right. So. <laughs> but go well, ahead with that if you want. Well, okay, and and jump in any time also. Uh, you know, um well, I could start out by giving a <laughs> well, deism back then is not the same as deism as defined today. The deism back then was an attempt um by the founding fathers at that time, it was an attempt to to bring some oh, how can I explain it? To bring some clarity to the concept that had been so discombobulated by the many dogmas of the denominations over the centuries. <clears throat> and it took a long time for the, the establishment churches to get there. You and I, Pastor, and, and probably most of the listeners, by that standard, uh, being branded a deist because you're challenging some of the concepts of the establishment churches, you and I would would probably qualify as some kind of deist by that definition, you know, coming out of the churches. So, you know, the the founders' ears of of deists came to their religious position with the intent of of avoiding having religious authority speak for them and or to speak for their God. So, you know, instead of putting blind faith in a hierarchy of priests or a board of clergy who might decide your so-called religious duties, they saw the God of the Bible as revealed through the wonders of nature that he created and, you know, things that made sense to them after they were free to question the clergy if, in fact, everything the clergy were telling them was correct, as been taught in the church. So, you know, I mean, uh, we have to define our words. You know, actually, as, as far as the term they used, nature and nature's God, this is several hundred years ago, and just because they use different terms than we do today, it doesn't mean they had rejected the Christian faith. You know, the Apostle Paul, to some extent, would even agree with that form of deism, because uh, Paul in Romans one twenty, I had it down here for a moment. Let me see what I did with that. And here we go. We can compare this to the to the deism of nature and nature's God that the founding fathers had had uh, given us in their wording. Paul says this in Romans 1, chapter 1, verse 20. For the invisible things of him, right, since the creation of the world are clearly seen, being perceived through the things that are made, even his everlasting power and divinity, that they may be without excuse, that is, unbelievers. So can you see God Almighty through nature and his power and his divinity? Well, Paul said that you could. So the founders didn't reject, you know, Christian truth. They were actually trying to understand it better and to understand the God of the Bible better without the ecumenical dictates of the church clergy. So there, there's a, you know, there's a real difference um, in claiming some sort of generic deism to be a, a cosmic God that is, let's say, a magnetic force or some such thing. That's not what the founding fathers had, you know, relayed to us. And um well, you know, just even with the lapse of time, um, words and culture change. And um, a lot of people don't realize um, that modern-day definitions uh, in a modern-day dictionary really don't have any relevance to the concepts and thoughts that were used by the Founding Fathers in their time. No, you have to You can read in, their in writings. They definitely wrote in a different style and syntax 
Absolutely. Uh, people don't talk like they, they did 225 years ago. Not, not exactly. Well, even he talks differences from in English from nation to nation. If you were talking about a bonnet here, you'd be talking about something that a, that a lady wears on her head. If you go to Great Britain, you talk about a bonnet, they're talking about the hood of their car. So, you know, you have to slow down and, and do a little research and see what the definitions of the words meant. So deism then to the Founding Fathers they were actually doing what many Christian identity people have done. They were coming out of the churches. And uh, they got branded as heretics or, or deists or something of that. You know, James Madison is one example. I have a quote from James Madison of what the problem with establishment Christianity or, or trying to see the truths of God and his power and divinity. James Madison uh, in his memorial and remonstrance against religious assessments in 1785, said this, quote, during almost 15 centuries, now he doesn't say the gospel here, okay? Listen to what he says. During almost 15 centuries, the legal establishment of Christianity has been upon trial. What has been its fruits? More or less, in all places, pride and indolence in the clergy ignorance and servility in the laity in both superstition, bigotry, and persecution. So they weren't rejecting the gospel. They were having big-time trouble with the entrenched clergy you know, behind the pulpit. And John Adams to a letter in Thomas Jefferson. Here's another idea of, of their take on true Christianity compared to what was going on in the establishment churches. And they were right on the money. Uh, John Adams in a letter to Thomas Jefferson said this, quote, Kabbalistic Christianity, which is Catholic Christianity, and which has prevailed for 1,500 years, has received a mortal wound of which the monster must finally die. And he's referring to their freedom in the late 1700s in America, their freedom to question the churches. So, I mean, you know, yes, what, what are the definitions of, of which we are speaking? You know, Benjamin Franklin... He's probably considered, you know, maybe the least religious of them all. And uh, it, it's amazing to note what good old Ben Franklin said. He, you know, he quoted in uh, when he was uh, petitioning the uh, deadlock in the Constitutional Convention on June 28, 1787, and people would say, well, of all the people, Benjamin Franklin was the deist of them all. Well, here's what Benjamin Franklin said. He said, quote, the longer I live, the more convincing proofs I see of this truth that God governs in the affairs of men. And if a sparrow cannot fall to the ground without his notice, it is probable that an empire can rise without his age. Or is it probable that an empire can rise without his aid? Um, Benjamin Franklin was quoting from Matthew 10.29. So, um, yeah, if we stick know. to accurate history... Uh, Deism is relative. First, first-hand uh, documents, rather than all this second-hand trash, mm-hmm. then uh, we're being fair with history. But again, this is the uh, the demonizing of our heritage, so that uh, people are easily persuaded. Well, I mean, and, you know, you know uh, Christian identity Christians should be able to identify with the same kind of disgust the Founding Fathers had for these self-righteous clergy and an encroaching uh, churchianity at that time that we have with 
Judeo-Christians today. We've gone through it ourselves. We have experienced it. And for our founding fathers to be chastised and belittled for the very same things that we've experienced, well, Pastor, it's, it's just not fair. And there's You're not, there's not very fair little to people that are passed on, and they're not here to defend themselves. There, there's very little documentation where any of the founding fathers declared themselves a deist. Uh, the preponderance of their writings and sayings, they said they were Christians. Well, they said they were Christian. Now, the word, you know, deist comes from deity. And speaking of Benjamin Franklin, you know, Benjamin Franklin was commissioned to, to draw up a, the first seal of the United States. And by his own words, I've got that here on record, too, in the, from the history of the United States seal from the Department of State in 1909. Now, here's Benjamin Franklin using the word deity, and let's just see who this deity is that is the god of Benjamin Franklin. Here's what Benjamin Franklin said about describing his own seal that he had uh, constructed and, and presented for the United States of America's seal. Ben Franklin said this. Here's my seal. Quote, Moses standing on the shore and extending his hand over the sea, thereby causing the same to overwhelm Pharaoh who was sitting in an open chariot, a crown on his head and a sword in his hand. Raise from a pillar of fire in the clouds, reaching to Moses, to express that he acts by command of the deity. End quote. There's Benjamin Franklin's deity. He was a deist, and his deity was the god of our Saxon ancestors, whom Moses brought out of the Exodus. He was the god of the Christian Bible. Yeah, now, that's in, uh... and, and he used the word the deity to dis- to describe him. And they they probably, you know, Pastor, these were these were educated men. They could read Hebrew, they could read Greek and Latin. They've got us beat hands down. These our founding fathers were no fools, and and they probably have seen the controversy about the name issue that we even have today. So what did Ben Franklin do? He referred to the God of the Bible, the God of Israel, the God of our ancestors as the deity. And uh, so where do we go? Is it is the name of that God Y H B H Y H W H Lord or God or Yahweh? Well. What did old Ben Franklin do? He called this God of Saxon Israel in the scriptures the deity. And that was the deist that Benjamin Franklin was, the God of the Holy Bible. You know, uh, Ken, E. Raymond Cap has a book, The Great Seal of mm-hmm. the United States, and uh, deals with that story uh, with Benjamin Franklin. And that almost became our national seal. Right. But, but there's all kinds. If you want to talk about um, Israelite uh, symbolism in um, our um, early founding imagery, uh, you'll see the recurrent theme of 13. Oh, yes. Which is um, Israel being 13 tribes, if you break down uh, Joseph's sons, Ephraim and Manasseh. Right. The two, the and that was their tribes. thinking. They didn't just uh, grab the number 13 out of their, the hat. Right. Uh, that was subject-specific. It was subject-specific. And, and you're um, right. Uh, a deist, uh, a deity, is a, a synonym for God. It's just the way, it's the term they used. Like you said, it was, it was you know, a couple hundred years ago. Words changed slightly, and the, and the uses of words changed slightly. 
uh, another one that, that is pinned on them to be supposedly deist is the term divine providence. Well, that wasn't a generic deist term either, Pastor Downey. It's just uh, you know the first charter of Virginia. I'm in Virginia right now. I've, you know, I've I've perused the documents of the state. I've been here long enough to to see the background of it. The first charter of Virginia in in 1606 said right in that document, that the providence of God was in propagating the Christian religion. So then you go to the Declaration of Independence a little later, and the providence of God meant the Christian religion. Well, what did they say? You know, the famous closing line of the Declaration of Independence that is that is uh, goes down in history, and for support of this declaration, with a firm reliance on the protection of divine providence, we mutually pledge to each other our lives, our fortunes, and our sacred honor. Well, it had been long been established in the colonies that divine providence was the god of Christianity. So uh, a, a deist, as defined today, you know, it doesn't call upon God for protection. And the founding fathers in the Declaration of Independence, they called upon the protection of divine providence. Were they deists? No. Because deist, a strict deist believes that, you know, God doesn't interfere with the happenings of our lives. They don't. A deist does not call upon God because a deist does not believe God intervenes in the affairs of men. Yet we have our founding fathers using the term divine providence and saying, "Look, we're we're counting on a firm reliance for the protection of divine providence." So divine providence, just because it didn't say Jesus Christ, was not a deist term either in those days. Well, you know these demonizers of the founding fathers, they. They should find out if they prayed for divine intervention. <laughs> and if so, they weren't deist as they define the word. No. No, a deist says that, that God is like a, a watchmaker. He wound up the universe, lets it go, and sits back and watches everything happen. So, I mean, that's not what the, the founders did. They called upon divine providence and God, so therefore they could not be deist by definition. They were deist as Benjamin Franklin was. Their deity was the god of Saxon Israel. Well, it's like um, I, rem I have a book in my library uh, called The Bible and, and Its Wines. Mm -hmm. And um, a little interesting thing about the word wine is that at one time it meant grape juice. But as the Jews started buying publishing houses in the 1800s, uh, with that uh, came their privilege to redefine words to the point where the modern definition of wine is a fermented drink, <laughs> right. mm -hmm. which is a lot different than an unfermented <laughs> grape juice. All right. I don't know where we go from there, but I will make a comment. Well, Here's the point good. is that they change. It's like the word "gay" used right. to mean happy. Mm -hmm. Now it means a sodomite. Well, I know so, they've uh, taken a they've taken a wonderful word and they've they've uh, attached it to themselves. Sadly. Well, that's their expertise is smithing these words, uh, and uh we shouldn't be surprised the motto of the mossad is by way of deception shall we wage war exactly well, you know, i like to i uh, 
I did a little bit of research and, uh, you know, how early um, deism came on the scene. And I found something in the mid-1600s. Uh, there was a Lord Herbert of Cherbury. Uh, and he was one of the early proponents of deism in England. And in his book, The Veritate, he describes five articles of English deist. And they are, one, a belief in the existence of a single supreme God. Check. I agree with that. Uh, two, mankind's duty to revere God. Check. Three, linkage of worship with practical morality. Check. Four, God will give us if we repent, will forgive us if we repent and abandon our sins. Check. Mm-hmm. And five, good works will be rewarded and punishment for evil both in life and after death. Check. Can't argue with that. And that was as early um, uh, a foundation of um, of what the establishment churches considered radical Christianity. Right. And there's always been this kind of backbiting. And and the establishment churches are expertise in um, uh, demonizing any competition. And, and that's right. why a Christian identity is labeled a hate group, etc. Right. You know, they know how to do it. Well, if they lose people in the pews, then they lose their easy paycheck. It is monetary. And that's basically what it's all about. And the founding fathers... I've talked to years ago when I was back in in Pennsylvania, where I'm originally from. I've talked to Presbyterian and Episcopal, Episcopal ministers, and on two occasions I had one of each tell me, you know, Ken, you're right about the law, about teaching God's laws. But they said, I can't teach that from the pulpit. I'll lose my job. Yeah. They admitted it to me. So well, the, the, next, the Bible the next Sunday, there, there's the one Episcopal about. preacher's sermon was something about having recycling cans in the parking lot. <laughs> <laughs> you know, the Bible doesn't have too many kind words about false shepherds. No. And, uh, no. Uh, they will be judged. Most and certainly they will. Uh, it's our job in Christian identity to uh, warn the sheep that... Uh, they're being led by wolves. Mm-hmm. And I think that's what the Founding Fathers saw. They saw the wolves. Mm-hmm. Well, you can't get into the to the 1776 and and who it was that re- was responsible for building the nation and the uh, exclusive, exclusivity of the, of the preamble without getting into the racial connotation. So, you know, when you get into the racial thing... Um, Let's get into the preamble. Well, we can get into the preamble. I'll tell you what, I, I'll, I'll probably have to ramble on for a while, <laughs> if, you, if you don't mind. Uh, um, this is important, uh, because the, the preamble has also been uh, demonized um, uh, as a, a, some kind of um, legal uh, stand on sovereignty. Well, all right. It's 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 anything but, and it is the exact opposite. Um, I'll read. But that's the argument that's been used for years. Well, I know that. Well, it's only because you know there hasn't been an avenue to hear the other side of the story, which is why I'm 
thrilled with Bill Fink giving us this this um, media to express some different alternative uh, viewpoints on the matter. Because you know, I, I don't really, I'm not out to really um, have everybody believe the way I do. And I, you know, when our master returns, he'll tell us where each of us have been right or wrong. But at least let's do this. Before our people make a decision, don't you think it's a good idea to have both sides of the story presented? How can well, you make a decision when 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 one side is shouting down the other side or there's not even a forum for the other side? Let's collect all the information on even two or three different sides and let it lay our cards on the table and I and I trust our people when they have the, the right information, you know, they're the sheep of Israel. And they have the Holy Spirit in them, with the with the the earnest of the Spirit given in belief of Jesus Christ. And if they at least have the information, they'll have a a fair shot of deciding on their own what is correct and what is not correct. Well, so, that's what we're I'm, doing this evening: is we're challenging and questioning the authority of those people that are putting forth the ideas of um, the Constitution being immoral or the Founding Fathers being evil. And uh, we haven't mentioned his name yet this evening, but for 10 years... Uh, <laughs> I think I know where you're going. Ted Wyland yes. has been the major nemesis mm-hmm. to persuade people uh, that um, uh, the things that, that we're challenging this evening. Mm-hmm. Uh, and, in fact, I was astounded that uh, I know... He's long-winded, but you told me the other day that he's got a book out now that's 600 pages. Or thereabouts. That is um, uh, espousing all the things that we're challenging this evening. And well, we, I'm not saying we can't, everything that... We can't you know, deal I've with all 600 pages. Yeah. But he's been the main proponent uh, leading well, the charge has. in this regard. So go and ahead. And I can't argue with his, his premises that we have to get back to God's laws. That's a good thing. But, but you know, um, if you present 90% of the facts and leave the other 10 out, you, you know, you can have a, have a glass of orange juice that's 90% orange juice and 10% arsenic in there. It's still harmful to you. It's just that's a little gonna, bit of leaven. That's not going to go down very well. A little bit of leaven, leaven up the whole loaf. <laughs> yeah. Well, let's get into, the, um, let's get into the, um, the preamble. Yeah. And I know I've, I've, I've heard that message coming from, from Ted Wildland about, uh, three things that are evil, particularly with the Constitution or the Preamble Amendment One and the um, Article Six. So I don't know if we'll have another t- enough time. We'll, maybe we might even have to do a part two on this series. But anyhow, um, yeah, there's, there's, uh, this will take this will take a little bit of time to iron this out because um, it's it's relatively new as far as information out there. Well, it's not new; it just hasn't been brought forth. Here's the preamble: We, the people of the United States in order to form a more perfect union, establish justice, ensure domestic tranquility, provide for the common defense, promote the general welfare, and secure the blessings of liberty to ourselves and our posterity, do ordain and establish this Constitution for the United States of America. Now, I'd like to hit this from two angles and... and, uh, uh, this may take 10 or 15 minutes to That's fine. go from from square one and, 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 and catch up today to what we have going on. So uh, first, uh, let's examine what this means 
from within the Constitution itself as, as a law document. Then we're going to get into the scriptures about this, of, of this being actually in the prophetic scriptures of, of God Almighty. Now, in reading this preamble, the first point that, that has to be taken into account is that the founding fathers, as clearly stated, their purpose was not to form another union, because we're told that, well, you know, okay, we'll give you this one. At least they were okay in 1776, but that all changed in, in 1787 with the Constitution. No, sir. All right? Their intent was not to form another union or a different union or a brand new union, but on the contrary, their purpose, and, and Pastor as recorded right here in the preamble, was being set forth to form a more perfect union. Well, the... <laughs> The question which becomes rhetorical is the obvious. It's namely, more perfect than what? And the answer with respect to law is, you know, it's more per perfect from that union already in existence and under the Articles of Confederation and Perpetual Union. And that union itself came into being from the, Christ the Christian colonial governments. Now, now... Can I just say one thing? Yes. Yeah. Uh, let's keep in mind, most people think it's just kind of a poetic, flowery expression well, introducing a constitution. But actually, it's written in the language of, of law of that era. Is well, that correct? It is, and, and we have been trained to read it that way, that the, con that the preamble is, is the little bitty thing that doesn't count, and the constitution body is really what it is. You know, it's the exact opposite. The founders measured that. every word and knew exactly they measured what every they were word. saying. The preamble is the whole deal. Um, the founders, you know, within the Constitution themselves, um, as far as whether the Constitution formed a new form of government or was a continuation, it strictly was a continuation of that Christian government already in existence. And, and all you have to do is look at Article One, Section 1. America was already a Christian nation. It, it was a Christian nation of the fact that, that the people were Christian and the land was their inheritance, given them, as you pointed out, not states, but that term was estates back then. It's family. It was, a of, it was an estate given as heirs to us from our Heavenly Father. But Article 1, Section 1 of the Constitution says, No person shall be a representative who shall not have attained the age of 25 years and, listen to this, been seven years a citizen of the United States. Now, that section of the Constitution was written in 1787, meaning that seven years before this or prior to that would be 1780. And it refers to the period of, of citizenship of state residents during and under the Articles of Confederation of 1777. Now, the point I'm making is the Constitution deems that person as being the same citizen of the same United States, which applied to both the Articles and to the Constitution. In other words, their requirement going back seven years, it, it flowed right into the United States Union, recognized as qualification for representative. Mm -hmm. I don't know if, if, if I've made that clear or not. Well, keep going. Okay. Well, anyhow, this is on archives. People look at it again or look up some articles on, on our website. <clears throat> Let's state this. You know, there's been a lot of negative things said about Article 6 of the Constitution, completely out of line. All right? yeah. Article 6, every Christian should memorize that, because Article 6 uh, it supposedly uh, discarded uh, all of the Constitution that was before it, and it didn't do that. Article 6 of the Constitution says this, 
all debts contracted and engagements entered into before the adoption of this Constitution shall be as valid against the United States under this Constitution as under the Confederation. All right. Now, engagements, the word engagements, in light of the English and American historical law and the background of that era, is a word that's related to contracts of religious influence upon a people. It's binding right. them in the matters of faith. Right. So, you know, and this came from, from King Charles in England and uh, uh, his dealing with the Scots. King Charles I was king at a time of uh, militant revolution in England. He had made enemies with the English Parliament, and in an attempt to raise a larger army to take control of England, uh, Charles I cut a deal, as it were, with the Scots, who were vehemently anti-Catholic, and he wanted to see Protestantism as the only religion in the British Isles. Well, Charles entered into a compact with the Scots known as the Engagement of 1647, where he would make England a Protestant nation only. All right? So when our Constitution states in Article 6 that all debts contracted and engagements entered into before the adoption of this Constitution shall be as valid against the United States under this Constitution as under the Confederation, that term engagement meant all of the prior laws of the colonies, all the Christian organic law, all the contracts of the Christian men that had established and settled this nation, all of that Christian law were engagements entered into between Christians as men in their contracts and compacts and covenants. And Article 6 says all of those engagements are as valid under this Constitution as under the Confederation. So that brings all of your Christian law right into the Constitution, and every Christian should underline that section of Article 6 where it says, and engagements entered into. So there is nothing nullified, nothing made void that previously existed in American law. No, nothing nothing made void. The Constitution did not form any new government that supplanted any Christian government that was already in existence for in place for 150 years. They were adding something to it, Pastor Mark. Now, since so the new the government was not being formed, they were out to make a new, a new, a, a, um, a more perfect union, more perfect than what? The one already in existence. Article 6 said all the prior engagements are still valid. Now, since a new government was not being formed, what exactly were the founders doing when they drew up the Constitution? Now, here's where we get into the scriptural connection, and this is extremely important. This goes all the way back to the ancient scriptures with God's laws of descent and distribution. It's the inherited rights to liberty and land. And we can take that right back. We can take it back to Abraham. We can take it all the way back even to Adam in the garden. But when Jeremiah bought the field of Anamiel, his cousin, within his own family, it says something very interesting. You can, I'm going to condense it here for sake of time because we're running low on time here. In Jeremiah 32, verses 6 through 8, it says, The word of the Almighty, or the ever-living, came unto me, saying, The right of inheritance is thine, and the redemption is thine, referring to Jeremiah's family land rights. Now, Deuteronomy 32.8 says, When the Most High divided to the nations their inheritance. And let's stress those two words, their inheritance. When he separated the sons of Adam, he set the bounds of the people according to the number of the children of Israel. So we have a land inheritance 
that we are to decree by rights that we possess from God our Father. In, in Job 22:28, God tells us, you know, Thou shalt also decree a thing, and it shall be established unto thee, and the light shall shine upon thy ways. Now, it doesn't say the Almighty shall decree a thing, and it shall be established. He says, Thou shall decree a thing, and it shall be established. And we have, taking this further down, connecting this with the land rights, here's something that has been missed as to date. Amos 3.7, you know the verse, that says, Surely God will do nothing, but he revealeth his secrets unto his servants, the prophets. So, yes, indeed, Pastor Donnie, we have been told by the secret words revealed in the scriptures by the prophets where the Constitution and the preamble to the Constitution and those land inheritance rights is given. Now, it was given to Israel and their latter-day nation of Zion to decree and establish their inheritances of land and liberty. And it's been written in the prophets all the time because there was a set time, and the scriptures refer to it. There was a set time that this decree of Israel and for their posterity, you know, their children, children's children, was to take place, and it was right in Psalm 102. Now, we're going to study a few verses of that psalm. And um, let me know if you uh, have any comments here. Just let jump let in. me make a point here. If, if the hereditary laws to transfer property had been handed down from the days of Abraham, why would they all of a sudden stop? Was that something that was nailed to the cross? No, they didn't stop. No, because but somebody, somebody is saying, somebody is being antinomian here. Well, they right? are. They are. Mm-hmm. Go ahead. Well, and, and I'm, well, I'm glad you made that point because we're talking about did it stop? Psalm 102:12, and I'm, I'm glad you made that comment because we're going to get right into that. Psalm 102:12, but thou, O Yahweh, are the ever living shall endure forever, and thy remembrance unto all generations. All right? It didn't stop, okay? Verse 13, thou shalt arise and have mercy upon Zion, and we know that's prophetic USA. Mm -hmm. Thou shalt have mercy upon Zion for the time to favor her. Yea, the set time is come. So there's a set time that God Almighty was going to have mercy upon Zion. Now, when was the set time for Israel and their generations? Remember, he says this is a remembrance unto all generations in Psalm 1 and 2, 12. When was the set time for Israel and their generations to be favored by God Almighty? Well, you know, Pastor Downey, the next verse tells us what that set time was all about and when it would happen. I'm going to read verse 14 from Psalm 102 because it's talking about the land inheritance where the people of God, his sons and daughters, are to honor the very soil upon which we stand. Verse 14 reads, For thy servants take pleasure in her. That's referring to Zion's. For thy servants take pleasure in hers, Zion's stones. That's the very rocks of this nation, the very stones in the ground. Thy servants take pleasure in her stones and favor the dust thereof. That is the soil. That's the honor of the land inheritance. Just like God told Jeremiah, the right of the land inheritance is thine. Now, we mentioned earlier, talking about uh, prophetic time, and you had brought up earlier the 2,520-year punishment, which ended in 1776 with the Declaration of Independence. 
Well, lo and behold, and, and uh, most of your callers probably know that the Hebrew alphabet did not have numerals in those days. They had their letters were their numbers. The Hebrew letters of that verse, and without the vowel points of the Masoretic, I might add, that's another subject, the pre-Masoretic vowel pointless letters in the Hebrew verse of Psalm 102.14, when you add those letters together of honoring the land inheritance and favoring the dust thereof, it totals 1,787, 1787. That, prophetically, given by God in the psalmist, is the set time. What a coincidence. That's, well, what a coincidence. The same <laughs> coincidence of 1776. Right. It was a time that was to come in Zion, which is North America, when God's servants of Saxon and Israel would value, pastor, they would value the very rocks of the soil of the ground that God wanted them to have. It's that important. It's that important. It's in the dirt we stand upon, Pastor. Proverbs 13.22 says, A good man leaveth an inheritance to his children's children, and the wealth of the sinner is laid up for the just. You know what that is? That's our war for independence. Let me read that again. A good man leaveth an inheritance to his children's children, and the wealth of the sinner is laid up for the just. America was taken off of the British who were wallowing in the banker-infested government of King George, were they not? And the land was given to the humble servants of the Christian colonies, whom God had justified in, in winning the war for independence for them. And they did it by leaving an inheritance to their children's children, namely the preamble to the Constitution. Remember we read in Job, Thou shalt decree a thing, and it shall be established unto thee. Well, <laughs> when Jeremiah bought his cousin's field, God told Jeremiah that it was a family-inherited right. You know, Jeremiah said, The word of the ever-living came to me, saying, The right of inheritance is thine, and the redemption is thine, referring to the land. So the Saxon-Israelite land rights go hand-in-hand with redemption. So, you know, God Almighty sees to it that we have a place to worship him and a, a safe place in, you know, in which to live. Now, if you have any comments, you know, just go ahead. I mean, if 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 if, uh, if I'm rushing through this a little bit too fast, you slow me down. Well, we we simply need to emphasize because children aren't taught this in in the um, brainwashing mills they call public education. Well, that not. it was a great sacrifice that they believed so much in what they were doing that they were willing to die for future generations. Well, they were willing to die. Absolutely. It was that that's, important. That's how important it was, the land and their freedom and their liberty. I mean, it's an inheritance, a family inheritance trust. Given the, and it all tied together. In the late 1700s. So, the, so prophetically, the number 1787, the original drafting of the, the original Constitution, is as prophetic as 1776, the Declaration of Independence. Now, let's get into the law of the Constitution to see if the Christian founding fathers uh, set up an inheritance trust for their posterity based upon the Bible laws or of, of the scriptures that we just read for our family land rights. Now, this may be new to some people, so I'm, I'm going to go through this from A to Z. A trust, I'm reading from Cochrane's Law Lexicon, the fifth edition, okay? A trust, for those who may not know, is defined as a right in property that's held by one person called 
the trustee. So this person holds a right in property, and it says uh, a right in property held by one person called the trustee for the benefit of another called the beneficiary, and we've all heard that. Okay. Now, let's just back up for one second, because we're going to see that the Constitution was not set forth to establish any type of new government. It was an inheritance trust document within the Christian government that was already in effect, was already going on. The preamble says, We the people of the United States, in order to secure the blessings of liberty to ourselves and our posterity. Now, let's examine this to see what the founders were doing here. Now, I mentioned to the, re- to the listeners earlier in the show to, to go get yourself a pen and paper ready so we can compare what a family trust is to exactly what the framers of the Constitution were doing. So listeners out there, you can get your pen and get your paper ready, and we're going to make two columns. You can do this on one side of the paper. We're going to define from our Saxon Western Civilization Law from a consortium of law references that tell us about exactly what constitutes a trust. Now, here's the definition of a trust. Now, listeners out there, get your papers and write this down because you're going to make two columns and we're going to compare the preamble to the Constitution to what I'm going to reveal to you now to see if indeed the Founding Fathers were not forming a new government, but in fact they were adding a trust inheritance document to the government that was already in existence. Right. Let's just keep in mind that people have probably heard about a family trust. where they family trust. uh, But this is on a national scale. What's on a national scale puts a new meaning to in God we trust, right? Right. <laughs> so, so listeners, let's write this down, and I'll go through this slowly. On one side of your paper, and leave, leave room to write a, a column on the, on the right-hand side. Number one, a trust needs to have an able settler. That's S-E-T-T-L-O-R. It needs to have an able settler, and that means someone who furnishes the trust, and a sufficient trustee. Now, you don't have to write this all down, but a a trust needs to have a settler or a furnisher and a trustee. Now, a trustee is the person who is holding the property for the benefit of another. That's number one. I give them time to write that down. A trust needs to have a settler and a trustee. Number two, a trust must have a determined wreath, spelled R-E-S, you pronounce it wreath, now, a wreath is simply, it's simply a thing. That's the, that's the easiest way to put it, anything. A wreath is simply a thing that's being bequeathed or handed down. So a trust must have a determined wreath or a thing that's being bequeathed. And I'm pausing here, Pastor, to give the people a little chance to write this down because I want them to see this right in front of them, what the Founding Fathers were doing exactly and precisely. Because as you said, every word, was written in a, in a precise manner. They knew what they were doing. Number three, a trust needs to clearly show beneficiaries. All right? So put down three, and a trust needs to show beneficiaries. Number four, those creating the trust must have proper control of the subject matter of the trust. Those who are creating the trust must have proper control of the subject matter. Number five, a trust must enumerate an intention. 
for which it is created. A trust must enumerate an intention. It has to have that purposeful reason for which it is being created. So we want to write that down. A trust must enumerate an intention for which it is created. Then we have the last one. This will suffice for our demonstration here. Number six, a trust cannot be executed until it provides a statement of manifestation. In other words, uh, that it intends to be actively established. So a trust cannot be executed until it provides a statement of manifestation. Well, be in full force. In full force. Now, listeners, here's something you don't have to write down. I'm just going to just, just point this out, a little statement of law. Um, our Western civilization law that developed from the, the scriptures and the fairness thereof and the testimony of a certain truth, even though we don't see the words family trust in the Constitution, the makeup of it shows that it was indeed a lawful intent to establish a family inheritance trust. I'm going to quote something from you. You do not need to write this down. This is from 79 Amger. That's American Jurisprudence. That's a law encyclopedia. Okay. 79 Amger, Second Wills, and Section 24 says this, quote, The test is not what the instrument is called, but what the person executing it designed to have it accomplished. Let me read that again. The test is not what the instrument is called, but what is the person executing it designed to have it accomplished. Now, simply put, as we put it, Pastor, if it looks like a duck, acts like a duck, swims like a duck, quacks like a duck, well, it's a duck. So that's where we are with the preamble. Was the preamble and the Articles and the Bill of Rights in the Constitution designed to be a trust instrument? And the answer is yes, it definitely was, and it gets back to, to God's laws of descent and distribution that we saw with Jeremiah, also to Abraham. Now here, uh, listeners, write this down on the other column, right opposite your number one, on the opposite side of the page. Here's what we have with the preamble to the Constitution. Here's your next number one, right adjacent to the first number one we have. The Constitution declares an able settler. It's specifically listed as we, the people. Okay? So we've got your settler that they wrote, S-E-T-T-L-O-R, and it's listed as we, the people. And by the way, don't have to write this down, but the articles which follow the preamble create the trustees, which are the officials, and they list their duties. That's all we have here. Okay? It, 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 it was a job for the trustees or the officials to maintain the family inheritance. Number two, right across from your number two, is there a determined res, R-E-S? Yes. The thing or res secured and being handed down is the blessings of liberty. Right? So hey, where does blessings res? come from? <laughs> Well, it didn't come from a generic cosmic force that some some deist made up. <laughs> we know we know where it came from. Yes, you know? and I think the founding fathers knew also. Yes, they did, and they knew what they were doing with the with the Constitution and the preamble. Number three, right across from the number three that you have in your one column, whether it's right or left hand side, depending on how you lined it up, the beneficiaries of the Constitution are specific, and they are proclaimed to be ourselves and our. Posterity. Now, the word posterity means racial family line. 
Okay. Maybe that's why they don't like it. They think it's racist. Oh, my God. It hit a nerve there with the Mm -hmm. Karl Marxist. Well, now you know why they they put the preamble on the back burner and say it's not that important, because that word, our posterity, is in there. If you're not the right posterity, the Constitution's got nothing to do with you. So number three is the beneficiaries of the Constitution are specific, and they are proclaimed to be ourselves and our posterity. Number four, can it be determined that the Constitution's framers had proper control of the subject matter over which they were presiding in the the document? Now, without doubt, you can just put this down real quick. They had just won the war for independence, and they had complete possession of the land and all the other property within their jurisdiction. They had proper control of the subject matter. They just won the war, and they had possession of the land. They were winners, not losers. They were winners, right. How about that? They defeated the the world power of their day, the colonists in America. Number five, the founding fathers were clear in their intentions as to why they were creating the Constitution. I remember trust has to have have clear intentions, all right? The founding fathers were clear in their intentions, and their intentions were in order to form a more perfect union, establish justice, ensure domestic tranquility, provide for the common defense, promote the general welfare, and secure the blessings of liberty to ourselves and our posterity. Right? So, you think they could put that in just plain language? <laughs> I'm being facetious. I know. <laughs> well, they were probably toning it down to them. These were, I mean, you know, I mean, to them, they were well-read and, and uh, had a command of the language. Number six, finally. Yes, we do see a statement of manifestation to make it an act of reality, right? And that is, we do ordain and establish this Constitution for the United States of America. It's number six. They had a statement of manifestation. They're establishing the Constitution for the United States of America. Brothers and sisters out there listening to Bill Fink's talk show, the Founding Fathers knew exactly what they were doing. And they penned every word of their covenant between the Christian states, that is, the confederated union of the Constitution, according to God's laws of descent and distribution for the following generations, or that is, the posterity of Israel. So the uh, the test was not what it's called. It, it doesn't say that it was a trust. It doesn't have but to. But it's, it's what... The thing does. It's what the thing does, and and that's what our Saxon law is upheld all the time. It's what it does. Getting back to basic principles. Right. Well, now, you know, the job of the trustees, which are Congress, here's the job of Congress. It's to guard the inheritance rights of the Saxon Christian family in America, the posterity of the preamble. That's all the power they were given, Pastor. That's their job. And it's a crucial part of the of the Commonwealth taught by Paul in Ephesians two. So you know, what we have with the Constitution is is the preamble forms a family inheritance trust of of our rights to land and liberty, and the articles of the Constitution they they tell the trustees or Congress what they can do, and the Bill of Rights tells them what they cannot do. So what we had is this is a a, a family trust that's within the already ongoing Christian government of the land. They never did set out to create some different form of government in 1787. Even though taxation was an issue, 
they were fighting for their property. Well, uh, they were fighting for their as, property. Uh, Christian freemen. And I right. think um, uh, another word that is uh, you don't hear too often is a loyal title. Well, and that's what they had. Every square inch. I don't have it in front of me, but I have a Supreme Court case of Pennsylvania that, that reads that. I, I could bring it up. We're already at 951. But um, this was done. This family inheritance trust, after, after God's laws of descent and distribution, was brought forth in 1787, and it was the set time, as stated in the Psalms, to decree the land and liberty trust to be held for our children and our children's children in our new Jerusalem, and that is our Zion nation of Isaiah 18. And it wasn't I mean, just a cliche uh, that we were biblical kings and priests. You no. were king of your own castle, mm-hmm. and you, you owned that lo- land uh, pure and free, so that you, weren't, free. you couldn't be taxed. No. It couldn't be taxed, and they didn't tax it. They never did tax it. Not until the the Constitution was subverted years later. The founding fathers cannot be found guilty. They can't be found guilty decades later. Pastor, what the founding fathers wrote was our Saxon land trust given to us from the estate of our heavenly Father. Is what they were doing. They were not evil evil conspirators, Masonic evil conspirators, to deny us of our liberties and freedoms and those that are saying that they are they've got it completely backwards they were christian and they knew god's law that's it and they applied it as they understood history in context to everything that was happening in their lives at that time exactly And in God's timetable, it was perfect timing. Well, I mean, he had it all timed out. I mean, um, the 2,520 years uh, started with the Declaration of Independence, and we had the uh, the government, government and the people were already Christian. They added to it to make sure they didn't give this up. They wrote the preamble to the Constitution for their uh, Saxon uh, Christian Posterity, and you know, by the way, every every person that signed that constitution was a white Saxon Christian, and um, if you weren't of that posterity, and according to the writings of the era, that included all of the other Saxon Christians in Europe as well. It goes back to Magna Carta. I have other information on that, and the the listeners can get on to the website if they write me, and they can read about this in more detail because there's more articles of law and scripture that are interwoven together. We're just hitting the highlights tonight. Yeah. You know, if you want to hear something funny that's political correctness, sometimes get a uh, $2 bill. All right. Uh, on the back side, there's uh, a group picture of the signers of the declaration. Okay. And if you get a magnifying glass, right in the middle there, you'll see... A Negro. <laughs> I've seen it. I've seen that. They have to get it in there, don't they? Yeah, they just. What posterity is that? <laughs> <laughs> he's the wrong posterity. He can't yeah. sign. You look at the famous painting. He's not there. But he's, he's on not the two dollar bill. <laughs> well, we're at 
we're within five minutes here of 10 o'clock. Are we about ready to wrap this up for now? I think we've uh, done an excellent job this evening of briefing uh, our kindred. If, yeah, if we're going to close, I would like to close something, then then you can certainly, you know, um, wrap it up and, and uh, uh, give the closing prayer because uh, you've been an excellent host. I've enjoyed speaking with you. Mark, I've had a great been, time, Ken. It's been my pleasure indeed. I'd like to uh, read a quote from Daniel Webster, who's a congressman from New Hampshire in 1812 for two terms. And here's what he said on, on June 1st, 1837. I'd like to leave, this, leave the listeners with these thoughts of Daniel Webster. He said, quote, Hold on, my friends, to the Constitution and to the republic for which it stands. Miracles do not cluster. And what has happened once in 6,000 years may not happen again. Hold on to the Constitution, for if the American Constitution should fail, there will be anarchy throughout the world. Let us not forget the religious character of our origin. Our fathers were brought hither by their high veneration for the Christian religion. They journeyed by its light, labored in its hope. They sought to Mm-hmm. <laughs>